the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. For you came, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make you a grave, for you are vile. Behold, the mountains of the feet who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He scattered, uh, the, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all of your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. For there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And although this word was pinned hundreds, even thousands of years ago, 
We're grateful that it is still true. We're grateful that it is a living and active word. It is still able to accomplish its desires and intentions for your, us, your people. And so we would pray that as we now consider this word, that your Holy Spirit would be considering our hearts, working, stirring, changing, causing us to look to Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've moved on slightly from the book of Micah to the book of Nahum. We are looking at three of the minor prophets from the Old Testament this fall. We considered Micah, and then we turned the page, and now we're considering Nahum. We'll be in Nahum for a couple of weeks, and then, Lord willing, we'll turn the page and we'll go to Habakkuk. And there's a certain interrelatedness between these minor prophets that, we're, that we've lumped together and, get together and are considering. Um, you, you, you note when you get to verse two of chapter one that, uh, that like Micah, this is, a, this is a hard word. In fact, if you thought Micah was hard, then uh, Nahum feels even harder uh, than, than the book of, of Micah. Nahum opens with a devastating word. Now, we're told in particular that this is a word to Nineveh. It's a word against Nineveh. Um, and, and, and yet, while this is a word against the Assyrians, which is, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, it's also a word for Judah. It's also a word for the people of God. But as it's directed against Nineveh and the Assyrians, it is a devastating word. It is a sure word. Look at verse 2 again. In fact, this is one of the verses that we would particularly zone in on to give us a flavor for uh, our reading this morning. The Lord is jealous and is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, what word was thrice repeated there? This is a hard word. Avenging, avenging, vengeance. It's a word against Nineveh. Now, a bit of a backstory. First of all, before I get to the backstory, two things I want us to try to make our way through from our reading this morning, and we're already into the first point, and that is we're reading something about the Lord's announcement against his, I mean, the Lord's avengement against his adversaries. The Lord's avengement against his adversaries. We've noted that already in verse two. And in a few moments, we'll transition and we'll pivot and we'll see something of the Lord's announcement before his adversaries. But first, the Lord's avengement against his adversaries. This is a word against Nineveh, as our passage has said. Nineveh was the capital city, the mighty superpower of that day and age of the Assyrians, whom uh, they seeped into the book of Micah because the Lord was going to deploy the Assyrians 
to be an instrument of his discipline and judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. God raised them up, if you would, made them the superpower that he made them in order to inflict discipline and judgment upon his covenant people. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians sweep down and completely dismantle the northern kingdom of Israel. That was, that was the Lord's hand in deploying the Assyrians to do just that. A couple of decades later, in 701 B.C., as the Assyrians are still on the move, taking out whoever it seems they want to take out, they, they sweep down and they, um, they surround the they siege, they siege to the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is not the first time we've encountered um, a, a prophecy against Nineveh. You remember some 120 plus years prior to this event, God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. And, and in that moment, some 120 plus years prior to this announcement, the, the prophet Jonah marches right into the middle of the city of Nineveh and announces their destruction, and the people of Nineveh repent, and they turn to the Lord. Now, a couple of generations have, has subsided. Assyria uh, did not maintain that sort of repentance against the Lord. They became a mighty country, but they were a nemesis of a country. And it says here in verse 9 and verse 11 uh, that uh, they plotted against the Lord. Uh, what do you plot against the Lord? Or in verse 11, uh, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. So in other words, their, their, their notion of repentance dissipated and disappeared. A, a whole new generation of people grew up who had no interest in the Lord. In fact, plotted against the Lord. They thought they were so mighty, they thought they were so great, that they thought they were mightier, mightier and greater than God. In fact, in fact, I would suggest to you that what got them in trouble, probably the, the particular trigger, occasion of this prophecy that we know as Nahum. The, the evil that they plotted against the Lord is they up and trash-talked the Lord. Now, here's what I mean by that. In 701 B.C., uh, after they had taken out the northern kingdom of Israel, which was 10 of the 12 tribes, there was only two tribes remaining, um, Judah and Benjamin, and they lay siege around Jerusalem. Hezekiah is the king of Judah at that moment, and, 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 and everything was pretty much fine until, until the Assyrians had to go and do it. They had to go and trash talk. For instance, in Isaiah 36, as they lay siege around Jerusalem, they, they, uh, they tell the people of Jerusalem, don't go do something stupid like trust in the Lord to deliver you. And then, they, and then here's what they say. They say, has, has any of the gods of the nation delivered to his lands out of the hand of the Assyrians? 
Has any God been greater than we are? When we want to take a country, we take the country and defeat that country's God. And we're going to do that to you and to your God as well. <laughs> or so they thought. And that triggers, I suggest, in large part, the occasion of this sure, devastating word to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. The Lord would soon raise up the Babylonians who would, like verse 8, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. All of the Lord's adversaries face the justice of God's wrath. Now, that's not just a, uh, an Old Testament kind of thing. It's amazing how many people think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. And, but that's just normally the thought of people who are skeptical about the authority of Scripture in their lives to begin with. What is true in the book of Nahum concerning the Lord is still true about the Lord today. And in particular, to be more specific, all who, back in that day, but now in this day as well, all who deny and defy and dishonor the Lord face the certainty of but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That's still a true word. It's, it's a word that declares even today, our God wins. It's always been true, and it always will be true. There's been moments in history when it didn't look like that from a, a human perspective. It, it often looks like that today from a human perspective. It's like the inmates are running the penitentiary around the globe. Knuckleheads are ruling. No, the Lord reigns. And when the Lord deems it's just the right time, then the Lord will do what he's always done in the past, and that is bring a complete destruction upon his adversaries and to bring a complete annihilation of all his enemies. In fact, what is still true today that was true in Nahum's time is the question posed in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? You 
You know, oftentimes in our culture, we hear people, uh, they, they, they use this as a line to suggest that it doesn't really make any difference what you believe about the Bible or about Jesus or about salvation and those sort of things, and uh, that, that people can, can believe totally opposite things, and then someone says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, all roads lead to the same place. Well, I mean something different by that. But I would suggest that it is true that all roads lead to the same place. The final culmination of history as we know it will be before the throne of the Lord God who is judge of the living and the dead. All roads lead to the judgment of God. There is no getting around that one. There is no circumventing that sure and devastating word. The writer of Hebrews, for instance, tells us in the very first part of verse 27 of chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. There's no escaping that. Now the question is still the question that Nahum posed. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Or the word of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8. Speaking of those who do not know the Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Well, you see, it's more than, no, than old crabby prophets of the Old Testament who talk like that. It's, it, it's the New Testament that, that also holds out to us this reality that we will stand before the God who made us One of the audiobooks I'm listening to right now is entitled How, How the Scots, 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 people from Scotland, How the Scots Invented the Modern World. Fascinating book. But um, I probably have forgotten most of what I heard as I listened to it, but one of the things as I was listening to it, boom, it went technicolor on me, uh, was um, speaking about a typical mindset of, of a Scotchman in the 1700s. He, it, it, the, the author described that they, that they lived with a view to the end. In other words, they lived their life at that present moment with a, a, a view to the end of their life. In, in other words, and they understood that, the, that, that their life ended with death. So they started living with a view to death, and they worked backwards from there. I would suggest to you that's a really good way to live. Because it all terminates in death. If I was a gambling man, I would venture that, that the universal condition of each one of us here this morning is that our lives will end in death. 
Now, what's important then is in light of that reality and in light of the, the notion of then, then when we die, we all stand before our God, then that gives us the opportunity to start working backwards and answering questions like, so how should I live today in light of the end? Many people today give no thought of the end of life. No thought of what unfolds at the end of life. And I would suggest to you that we really don't start to truly, truly live until we've grappled with the reality, reality that we will die and what comes after that. So the, the old cranky word that Nahum issues to Nineveh is still the same true word for us today. The Lord's avengement against all of his adversaries. Now, I realize that, all, that, that some of us are going to think, well, I, I found me an out on this one. I'm not one of the Lord's adversaries well, as it turns out, each of us are born into this existence as native adversaries of the Lord God who made us. We are born in Adam, and we've proved that over a thousand times. We, there's never a one of us that doesn't fit the qualification of what Paul describes in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's narrow one of us who, do it, who therefore the paycheck that we deserve for that falling short of the glory of God and sinning is the wages of sin is death. Eternal destruction. Here's the reality of the matter. You and I have not loved the Lord God the way we ought to have loved him. We have not obeyed the Lord God the way we ought to have obeyed him. We've not trusted in the Lord the way that we ought to have trusted in him. We've not worshipped the Lord the way we ought to have worshipped him. We have broken his law. We have spurned his counsel. We have attempted to strike out on our own and do our own thing. That makes us an adversary of the Lord. And that qualifies us for his just vengeance. I'm so grateful that's not the only word that we have from Nahum this morning. It could have been the only word and God would have still been just and holy and gracious and merciful and loving and everything else that he is apart from us. But he gives another word. There's a messenger who issues an announcement. Lay your eyes on verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Now, you may have heard of another passage of Scripture that sounds a lot like that. And you're right. 
There is another passage of scripture that sounds a lot like that. I would suggest to you that Nahum was probably using his Bible when he uh, was moved by the Spirit of God to pen the words that he wrote. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah, who was a contemporary to Micah, who was of a, a couple generations out in front of Nahum. Listen to what Isaiah 52 verse 7 says. Then you tell me, this does not sound pretty similar. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Nahum is appealing to scripture to speak to the people of Judah. While this is a prophecy against the Assyrians, it is at the same time a prophecy, a word for the people of Judah. And Nahum is appealing to Isaiah's word to the people of, uh, of Judah. Now he's repeating, reinforcing that word, re-announcing that same sure word. You see, what Nahum is describing for us is the same thing that Isaiah described for us, that there is an announcement coming, that there is a, a herald scene coming. And this herald, this messenger, this announcer has a word of good news. Boy, if you've, it, 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 you don't have to read far in the Nahum to realize that thus far there ain't been much good news in this book. It's true news, uh, but it's bad news. And yet, and yet God sends a, a herald, a messenger who brings forth a good news message. It's an offer of peace. Or in other words, the king, in this case, God the king, the king has dispatched a messenger. And the message is an announcement that the devastation thus far described can be averted. In fact, deliverance from such devastation can be experienced for all who accept the king's terms of peace. Nahum's message is not just an announcement of bad news, but it's an announcement of good news. Peace can be made with the king so that when the king comes, the final devastation would not fall upon those who belong to the king, who accept his terms of peace. And what are his terms of peace? I would suggest that verse seven, it seemed, to seem kind of an interruption earlier when we read it, it feels out of place, but, but verse seven is a part of the herald's announcement the, of what, the, the, what the, the terms of peace contain and how one can experience the king's offer of peace. The Lord is good, verse 7 tells us. A stronghold in, day, in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge 
in him. Verse 7 is such a strange place to stick such a verse like that. I, I don't mean that disrespectful to the scriptures. It's a beautiful place. It's a true place, and it's exactly the place that God wants it. But from our perspective, there's a certain um, uh, oddity to it, because clustered around verse 7 is the surety of the devastating word that, I, that Nahum is announcing to the people of Nineveh uh, and Assyria. And in the middle of that announcement, um, he, he an, an announces that all who embrace this messenger's announcement from the king of an offer of the king's peace and what is that announcement? In essence, it's all who turn and trust in the Lord. Now that's a strange announcement because what has he said about the Lord thus far? He's an avenging God. He's an avenging God and he's a God who takes vengeance. The only way to escaping the avenging indignation of God is to accept his present terms of peace. The only way to escape the destruction that we will face by the hands of God is to right here, right now, run into the stronghold refuge of God. You can do it now and find peace and find a refuge and find strength. Or you can ignore it and delay it and kick it down the road and still have hanging over us the sure devastating threat of his vengeance. In other words... In other words, the only sure way to escape the vengeance of God is to flee to the refuge of God. Now, what Nahum doesn't unpack for us, the New Testament more particularly unpacks for us. Nahum just tells us that the king is sending a messenger, a herald, and, and this message contains an offer of peace to avert the, the uh, sure destruction, to experience true deliverance. But he doesn't fill in the details of that message, how that message gets worked out. But the New Testament does. And the New Testament tells us that this message, in fact, in fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 borrows from this notion here in Nahum 1.15 and in particularly its cousin of a verse from Isaiah 52.7. And Paul uses this notion of an announcement of, of, uh, of salvation and peace and good news 
to be contained in the preaching of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The only way to escape the avenging wrath of God is to quickly flee to the provision of God's grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why Jesus? Well, there's no one like Jesus. Jesus is God, and yet he's the member of the Godhead who volunteered for this assignment, who took on flesh and became a man. He served as the God-man, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a sacrificial death. And at the core of his life and at the core of his death is substitution, What I mean by that is at the cross Jesus takes the sins of his people. Any and all who would turn and trust in Jesus. Jesus takes the sins of his people and bears up under the avenging wrath of God for those sins. Jesus takes that in our place. Every ounce of the wrath of God that is pointed at you gets diverted to Jesus. Every ounce And God raised Jesus from the dead after that successful substitutionary accomplishment. He imparts his own righteousness to his believing people even as he takes our sins and its punishment upon himself. All who trust in Jesus get to experience refuge in the presence of God. All who ignore Jesus, who do not believe in him, and who even say they believe in him, but live as though he is of no consequence to their daily lives. They don't believe in Jesus either, in other words. All who reject Jesus, it's still on the docket that you will face the avenging justice of God. It's time to start with the end and to live in a way that works backwards. It's time to turn to Jesus. The only one who would take your sin from you, the only one who would take the just condemnation and curse for your sin, Jesus is the only one Savior of the world. Turn to Jesus. And for those who have turned to Jesus, we're not done yet. This passage speaks of a messenger. This passage speaks of a herald. Who might that be?
I would suggest to you that all who received this message of the gospel, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are then commissioned to be such heralds of the same word. We who believe should speak that word. This is not a reserved club for just a few of us. It's not, it's not meant to be the world's greatest secret. It's meant to be the word that those who love Jesus love to share that word about Jesus. It's a word that we would share when we get up out of here in a little bit and leave, when we move about our lives in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, that, that we would pray and look for opportunities in which God is preparing people's hearts for us to be bearers of good news. We've been given an announcement. We are beneficiaries, we who believe in Jesus, are beneficiaries of that announcement. And now we who believe in Jesus are to be bearers of that announcement. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's no word like your word, and this word this morning is devastating. And yet, Father, we leave out of here in a moment, not as those who have no hope, but we leave out of here in the joy of our salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do pray if there are any who are here who've never turned from themselves and their sin and turned to Jesus, then Father, may they feel that great need to do so now. May they turn to Jesus. And Father, those of us who do, may we turn again and again and again and again. Each and every day, throughout the day, we, may we marvel that, that our judgment has been diverted, that our curse for our sin uh, has been abated because Jesus has bore up under the curse of our sins. May we be a glad and happy people because we have been given good news to believe in. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.